Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, stories of struggle, hope, and survival in the face of colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode 29 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. We start 2016 with the big announcement that two of the largest colon cancer organizations, the Colon Cancer Alliance and Chris for Life, are coming together as one and are merging under the new leadership of uh, Michael Sapienza. Michael was the founder and CEO of Chris for Life, and this merger really will provide just increased resources to advance research, expand patient empowerment programs, and most importantly, saving lives through bigger and better screening programs. I had the pleasure of speaking to Michael back in May of 2015 for episode 13 of the Colon Cancer Podcast, and I truly admire his passion and his dedication. He created Chris for Life in honor and in memory of his mother, Chris, who passed away from the disease. So if you want to get a feel for Michael and what he's about, uh, check out episode 13 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Uh, Some events coming up in the colon cancer community that I want to make you aware of. There is a webinar coming up on Wednesday, January 20th, uh, which will be discussing for those who are unable to attend Live Your Best Life 2015, the annual conference in Phoenix. We'll be discussing the highlights of that conference and some of the key takeaways. So check out the Colon Cancer Alliance website for more information about that webinar. Again, that's taking place on Wednesday, January 20th. And I'm extremely excited to highlight the first uh, Undie Run Walk of the Year is taking place in my hometown, where we are broadcasting from in Tampa, Florida, on the first Saturday of February, Saturday, February the 6th, 2016, at Al Lopez Park. Yours truly will certainly be there, and we will be representing my team, Lee's Superheroes, and we will be all dressed up and decked out in our Batman attire. So for more information on this and the webinar and other events coming up, check out CC Alliance forward slash event. My guest this week is Dr. Tom Marsilia. And what a fascinating guy Tom is. I really admire his positive attitude, his his whole outlook on life. He's currently battling stage four colon cancer. And he doesn't use the term stage four or terminal. He refers to himself as, quote, currently incurable. Now, he does use the term terminal, but that's to describe his outlook on life. He refers to himself as terminally optimistic, which I truly have to admire. Uh, But Tom is a PhD. He has his PhD in medicinal chemistry, and he is an oncology researcher. So what's truly fascinating about his story is, in a way, Tom is currently researching the cure for his own disease. So join me now for my conversation with Dr. Tom Marsilia. Good evening, Tom. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be with you, Lee. Oh, I appreciate you making the time. And, and I know I read in your blog today that uh, you're in the middle of, uh, I guess we'll call it a holiday break from treatment. Uh, hope that uh, you're feeling positive effects from uh, taking a little break from all this. Oh, yeah, definitely. I had my last confusion about two weeks ago, and um, 
I uh, definitely want to take a couple week break for Christmas and enjoy it with the kids. And I'm feeling really good tonight. Good for you. So tell, while we're on that topic, uh, take me, take us back and tell me about how you came to be diagnosed. Okay, so it's actually back um, about four years ago now. I started having some um, symptoms, GI symptoms. So I was having um, alternating constipation and diarrhea. And at the time, I was almost 40 years old. So I started uh, playing around with my diet, and um, and I did that for a couple months. And for a couple months, uh, it would get better, then it would get worse. It would get better, then it would get worse. And um, really, at that point, cancer never even crossed my mind. It wasn't even on the radar. Um, and that's really ironic because I'm a cancer researcher, and my family is filled with cancer. Um, but no one in my family had cancer as young as 40 before, so it really wasn't on my mind. And eventually, after about six months of basically trying to ignore it or trying to play around with foods, I made an appointment with my, my PCT, and he checked some of the real obvious things. Um, once again, cancer wasn't on his mind at all. Um, because I was only 40 years old. Um, and eventually he scratched his head and he set me up with an appointment with a gastroenterologist. And about nine months after I first started having symptoms, I saw a gastroenterologist. And uh, he luckily recognized the symptoms immediately. And he scheduled me for a, a, a colonoscopy for as soon as possible, which was about two days later. And it was uh, via the colonoscopy that, that, I, was, um, that I was diagnosed. Um, and so that's one of the things I really uh, want to stress to to your listenership is that um, if you're having symptoms, um, if, if they know people, obviously a lot of your listenership already has colon cancer, but really spread the word to the general public that um, no matter what your age, uh, if you're having symptoms and there aren't easy explanations, do not hesitate to get a colonoscopy and um, really, uh, really insist upon it. Because um, I have to admit, I kick myself, you know, to this day as a, as a cancer researcher, not recognizing the symptoms um, for those nine months there. And who knows, it, it might have made a difference. And what stage were you diagnosed initially, Tom? Okay, initially I was diagnosed stage 3C. Um, and so I had um, a tumor resection. And I went on uh, six months of uh, chemotherapy. So I did uh, three months of full fox. And then um, I had neuropathy issues, and so um, I stopped after six infusions, and I then did six infusions of Fulfiri, even though it isn't standard of care. Um, me and my oncologist decided to try it, um, just uh, really was going for the cure, because stage 3C colon cancer is, is curable in, in a significant percentage of patients. Um, and so I went through the chemotherapy, um, I pushed my way through it, and um, afterwards I felt... Um, after about a month after chemotherapy ended, I, I felt absolutely great. The chemotherapy side effects went away. Um, I really looked at it as a side across the uh, shot across the bow, um, and I cleaned my, my eating patterns up. I uh, reprioritized my life. I became a, a long distance runner for the first time, and I really felt blessed. I became uh, more religious, and uh, it really was, uh, I would say, just about the, the most wonderful time period of my entire life. Um, and I had a clean scan after I was done with chemotherapy. Um, and then eight months later, I had my next scan, and there were some lymph nodes that were slightly enlarged. And um, a lot of your listeners probably know lymph nodes can get enlarged uh, for a lot of reasons. So we didn't know if it was cancer or not. So they just uh, basically uh, went about monitoring me for the next uh, nine months, it turned out. Um, and 
the lymph nodes barely changed. It was very, very uh, slow. They would get bigger, they would get smaller. Um, and so I was kind of in this um, almost like a purgatory situation for, for nine months where I was hopeful that I didn't have cancer, but um, we certainly were, were worried about it. Um, and then in, uh, in uh, June of uh, 2013, uh, I'm sorry, June of 2014, um, I was officially restaged, uh, uh, currently incurable stage four cancer. I had uh, uh, metastases to my uh, lymph nodes near my spine, as well as my um, as well as both uh, lobes of my lungs. So I was inoperable, um, and it was a, a really a, a quite quite a, a shocking thing. Although it was tempered by the fact I had nine months to prepare for it mentally, um, because I honestly had no symptoms. I, I still don't to this day of the actual cancer. Um, in fact, the, the very same day I got my um, stage four diagnosis. Um, I wasn't sure how to kind of uh, handle it emotionally. So I put on running shoes, and I ran my very first half marathon the same day at my stage four diagnosis. Wow. And so that was, um, that was in June of 2014. And, um, and here we are now towards the end of 2015. I'm about three and a half years out from my stage three uh, diagnosis. And um, to this day, I, I feel great. I obviously have some side effects from the treatments. Uh, but up until uh, a couple weeks ago, I was still running uh, 10K twice a week. I recently had to, to slow that down uh, a little bit, actually uh, quite a bit, because uh, I recently restarted full theory chemotherapy, and it does um, have some fatigue side effects, so this impacted my running. But um, I'm looking forward to hopefully over the, the Christmas holiday to uh, maybe run a full theory 5K and get back in the game. Uh, a full theory 5K. I like that. <laughs> that's that's my goal. Good for you. Well, you know, so you mentioned that you are a uh, uh, oncology researcher. Yes. What? T- tell me. Talk to me about the psychological aspects of you know of being both uh, a patient and the same person that I guess in a way uh, maybe directly or indirectly is working on finding your own cure, perhaps? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people ask me that question. And um, I look at it as, as wearing a, a couple of different hats. And I've, I just, depending on, on the moment or the day, I just wear a different hat. And I've really uh, approached my, my own diagnosis, my own um, disease, as a, the greatest research project my entire life. Um, I, I had a lot of research projects over the years, uh, different types of cancer, different types of um, targets. Um, and so basically the scientists in me this took over and it became my research project and it became a 24 hour a day, seven day a week research project. Um, in my heart as a scientist, I don't like to hear that something's impossible because science is all about doing things that have never been done before and doing the things that were formerly impossible. And so that's one, I don't know if you caught it earlier, but that's one reason I always refer to myself and I always refer to other stage four um, people that I know is currently incurable because I've seen so many things change in oncology, especially over the past three to five years, um, where uh, formerly incurable stage four uh, patients of various cancer types all of a sudden are living five, 10 years out with new therapies. Um, that's, it's, that's how I approach it. I approach it as a scientist. And um, it's actually, uh, I, I hate to use the word thrilling, but it's, it's the most um, incredible research project I've ever been on my entire life. 
That, that's amazing. <laughs> now, are you? Is the work that you do uh, specific to, or any portion of it, to colon cancer? Uh, historically, no. Um, so um, before I was diagnosed, I, I knew about colon cancer in general, but um, I never worked specifically in it before. Um, now um, I'm, I'm still uh, uh, working um, uh, in the field. And um, what I've been able to do is I've been able to um, really, uh, it's been actually really efficient in that I've been able to obviously research um, the literature, et cetera, uh, for colon cancer for my own needs. And I've been able to parlay, parlay that into helping out um, various research projects uh, internally and in, in where I work for colon cancer. So it's a kind of a, a very efficient goal where I'm trying to help myself. But then it's also my, my goal to help other patients as well and really try to use whatever I can learn from the literature to, to try to uh, move things along. Wow. I, uh, I, I've... I've... Yeah, I'm almost at a loss for words. I mean, to be in that situation, I, I can't imagine what that feels like. Uh, and I imagine at times that, uh, uh, am, am I correct in assuming that at times it's a little bit of an emotional roller coaster, or is it is it a constant thrill? Would you say? Um, well, just like everyone, I have I have ups and downs. Um, I, what it, actually it actually amazes me. I don't know how I'm able to do it, but I'm able to to really. Um, this put up that, that firewall and, and really been able when I'm a, when I'm looking at the science and kind of the the scientific and medical aspects of the disease, I've been able to kind of turn off the emotions to a large extent. Um, and since I'm so focused on trying to to uh, to to improve the, the care of myself and, and people I know, um, that's just the mode I'm in most of the time. Uh, occasionally, uh, you know, the emotions will take over. Um, for example, um, I have a lot of, uh, close friends now online, et cetera, that sometimes they're, they don't, they aren't doing well medically. Um, and, uh, sometimes they pass away and there are times like that when, of course, the, the science of me takes a break and I let the emotions take over. Um, but then, um, I, then I, I get back on the horse and I, I go back to work. You mentioned, uh, that you became a, a long distance runner and I love the, uh, uh, full furry 5k uh, many people that i talk to and myself too being a stage four uh, survivor uh, laud the benefits not just physically but emotionally of exercise uh, i know for me personally just being able to just spending time on the treadmill in between and sometimes even during treatment or just had this feeling that you know if i'm perspiring i can't possibly be sick right uh, talk about the benefits that you experience uh, as it relates to exercise and for people that might have the ability to exercise while they're uh, going through treatment but may have some hesitation. Uh, t talk a little bit about that. Okay, yeah, I'd love to because I, I think there are a lot of benefits. And, um, and of, of course, not everyone can run 10K twice a week. Um, what I really uh, advise people to do is to to – be as physically active as, as they feel they, they physically can be, and that will depend on the, on, the, on the person. But just using myself as an example, um, I was not a runner until after I had colon cancer. So I started running um, in that time period in between uh, finishing up my stage 3 chemotherapy um, and, and my stage 4 diagnosis. Um, and I started running, and when I first started running, um, I was a, a pretty, I'm a pretty active um, guy, I wasn't, uh, you know, out of shape, 
But I was out of breath after, you know, I could do maybe a mile. And, and I was completely out of breath. I was wheezing and bent over. I, I was not mm-hmm. a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, at that time period, uh, maybe speaking to the, to the stage three or stage two or stage one members of your audience, um, I, there, there is um, a lot of clinical data out there showing that physical exertion um, on a physical level is helpful. And so I knew that data. And so I made it this as a goal that I was going to become a runner. Um, and so it wasn't easy, but I basically I did a little bit more each time I ran and eventually I was able to get up to, um, you know, 10, 10 mile or half marathon type distances. And, um, and there are a lot of benefits. Um, and a lot, a lot of it's not only physical. Um, what I find when I'm running is I find that I get uh, a lot of people refer to as a runner's high where you used to get through the adrenaline or, or what have you. Um, it just makes you feel better mentally and emotionally. Um, what I found is that when there's times when something's bothering me emotionally about my disease, um, sometimes it's, it's good for me just to go out there and in the zone out where I focus on, on the pace of the running and all the kind of the worry and everything else leaves my head. And either I can be kind of blank minded uh, while I run, or if I want to focus on one thing, I can kind of just kind of focus on it. Um, but it really helps kind of clear away the mind being out there, being out there running or on a treadmill if you do it in, on the inside. Um, there, there definitely it's it's uh, I think there's a, a lot of benefits to it, on an emotional, uh, mental, and a physical level. Uh, music, music or no music? Um, I, when I'm running outside, no music because uh, um, I just prefer to be, enjoy the outdoors. Uh, when I'm inside on the treadmill, it's a different story than I put up. <laughs> gotcha. You talk a lot, Tom, in your blog uh, about immunotherapy. Uh, talk about what's happening in that arena. And I, and I know in your blog you, you do use the word of explaining these things so that people like uh, myself uh, can understand it in layman's terms. But talk about what's happening in the world of immunotherapy and and what you may expect to see coming down the road in those conversations about targeted therapies and those kinds of things. Okay, well, I'll start out with a, a brief history lesson. Um, scientists, uh, like a lot of people, uh, have always kind of recognized the obvious that the ideal cancer therapy would be to use your body's own immune system <coughs> to attack the cancer. Um, that's been uh, a goal of scientists for over 100 years. The problem is, is that even though that was a goal, and it was a kind of easy thing to say out loud, um, the science of the immune system is incredibly complex. And so it's one of those goals where I, I, said, I once referred to it as saying, I can, I can uh, have as a goal make a hyperdrive spaceship. That's fine. But if you don't understand the science of how to do it, it really doesn't get anywhere. Um, so there's been a lot of immunology research going on uh, for decades. And finally, about five years ago, um, first in melanoma, the various pieces of all this immunology research over the years finally started to click. Um, and for the first time in, in, in large clinical trials reproducible across a lot of different sites in a lot of different patients, they started seeing real activity in melanoma patients. Um, and so that was really the key. And um, having gone to cancer conferences for, 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 uh, for two, 20 years or so, um, when that happened uh, about five years ago or so, it was just a, a earthquake in the oncology world. Um, so it, it didn't make the headlines in the newspapers back then. It's made headlines in the newspapers more recently. 
But in the oncology world, it was an earthquake. There was a before and after. Because when it first started working reproducibly in clinical trials with you know, hundreds and now thousands of melanoma patients, that um, was kind of the proof that, yes, with modern science, we can engage the immune system and use the immune system to fight the cancer rather than giving a drug to try to poison the cancer. And so when that happened, when that kind of proved to scientists that, yes, this really is possible, realistically possible with today's technology, that just caused an incredible switch in, throughout the entire industry. I've, I've never seen anything like it, and I don't think anyone has for decades. Only thing I can really think of that might have been similar was the when they first started making antibiotics, which was you know, obviously a transformative event 50 years ago. And it, it just switched the gears throughout the industry. Basically, every company now, um, every research institute, every cancer um, center is now uh, largely focused on taking the immunotherapy uh, lessons that were first learned in melanoma and now trying to apply it to as many cancers as possible. And uh, they've been really steadily ramping up the number of cancers responding. And so uh, lung cancer started responding. It was recently approved for that. Um, other cancers are looking pretty promising in, in clinical trials. Um, and very recently, in just this year, back in um, the early June of this year, they announced that a subset of colorectal cancer patients um, called MSI high uh, colorectal cancer, um, that subset of colorectal cancer patients in preliminary data look like they're really responding to these therapies quite well. Um, and so as related to that, it became a real mission in my life, in my scientific life, and as, my, as a patient advocate life, to in, in recent months to really pound home in every media outlet I have across all the various online message boards, my, my various blogs, to make sure that all colorectal cancer patients get, make sure they're tested for, to see whether or not they're MSI high or not. And so um, the, the definition is actually, is pretty complicated, so I won't go on the definition here. Um, but um, it's something they can ask their doctor for. It's a test that is standard and should be available in just about anywhere where they're a patient. And uh, it's not just me stating this. The, the American Gastroenterological Association came out with a recommendation that all CRC patients be tested now for this, um, partially because um, the, the ramifications are so large. Uh, because if you do turn out to be MSI high in this testing, it really opens up the possibility currently um, with uh, drugs currently in clinical trials that you could have an immunotherapy response. Um, and so... Uh, this, this earthquake uh, that started out in melanoma a number of years ago, but recently, has now started to hit the colorectal cancer world. Um, and so I mentioned this for MSI high patients. Um, that's a, a, pretty, a relatively small percentage of, of CRC patients. It's a minority. Um, but I think um, the way I look at it and the way I talk about it in my blog is I think uh, what immunotherapies have done is that they've really changed a lot of people's thinking uh, as patients, certainly when I talk to people on online uh, boards, I hear it all the time. Everyone's curious about immunotherapies, uh, about using their own immune system to fight the cancer instead of using traditional chemotherapy. Um, and in my mind, uh, for the majority of CRC patients, which are called MSS, or you could also call them non-MSI, um, the scientists are very actively trying very hard to get immunotherapies to now work in the majority population of colorectal cancer patients. Um, certainly, it's, it's unknown science, and so I and no one else can make any sort of guarantees. 
Um, but right now, it is scientifically plausible that within the next uh, uh, five years or so, uh, time frames that the type of time frames that people with colorectal cancer you know are thinking in, it's certainly possible that the keys could be found to unlock immunotherapies for for the rest of us as well. So it's um, it's a it's an incredibly exciting time to be both a scientist as well as a patient now. It seems like uh, uh, I can't go more than a month on the same message boards without seeing some new drug, some new therapy has been approved. It seems like there's a real tidal wave coming. It is, and it, it's just going light speed. Um, you know, traditionally, uh, drug discovery uh, isn't a, isn't a uh, fast field. Uh, you have to go through many layers of testing. You know, first, you know, before it goes into clinical trials, you know, years of testing. Um, and then once it's in clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, um, it's been, you know, it's, it's been a slow endeavor, but it's moving at truly at light speed right now um, from my, from my scientist perspective. Um, for example, uh, uh, when, um, when uh, these new immunotherapies went up for, um, they were up, applied, they applied to the FDA for approval. I, I believe it's less than one week after the application went in, the FDA approved the drugs. So wow. the FDA knows that these things are game changers, and so once a once a clinical trial uh, shows that you know in enough number of patients uh, that immunotherapy is working for a particular type of cancer, the the FDA is not is not messing around. If the data is there to, to prove it, they they are going very fast because they know that the patients need these therapies, they want these therapies, and and they know they're game changers. So it's it's an entirely different world right now. And, and exciting. Um, is MSI high separate from CRAS, uh, K-R-A-S, CRAS uh, Wild? Yeah, they're completely different. So they're, they they're not okay. related at all. Um, okay. the, the one thing it is related to is that um, it is related to Lynch syndrome. Um, I see. So any listeners that you have that have Lynch syndrome, um, they will be MSI high. Uh, but there are also uh, people that are MSI high that don't have Lynch. Um, so there is a okay. relationship to Lynch, but um, they aren't exactly the same thing. I see. So you talked about your blog. I was fascinated uh, by uh, the title that you called it, Adventures in Living Terminally Optimistic. Where did terminally optimistic come from? <laughs> well, uh, the, the short answer is I stole it, but the long answer <laughs> is slightly more interesting. And so um, it, and it kind of goes to um, – there are a number of reasons why I wanted to start a blog. I started it actually pretty recently, um, just back in January. And one of the reasons I wanted to start it was um, when I was first diagnosed, I think even though as a scientist it doesn't matter, uh, I think like a lot of people, the first thing I did was go to Google. Um, and I, I started Googling things like, you know, colon cancer uh, blog or colon cancer hope and, you know, different things like that in general terms, non-scientific terms. Because I was, uh, I was obviously approaching the, the disease and diagnosis from a scientist angle, but I did have my own emotional side as well. And I, I, I wanted to connect to, to someone out there um, that was in a similar situation as me. Um, and so I, I found two uh, absolutely wonderful blogs I loved. Um, and one was an, actually a lung cancer blog, um, but it was an absolutely wonderful blog that had enough general things for a stage four patient in general um, that I, I, I became quite an avid reader of it. And there was a, a, a stage four colon cancer blog. And, um, and as, a, as a newly diagnosed patient, I really clung to both these blogs because both were long-term stage four um, disease uh, survivors. 
Um, they were both very um, positive, upbeat blogs. Um, and they showed that they were, you know, living life uh, really uh, to the fullest, even though they had stage four disease. Um, but they were both brutally honest. Uh, they had you know, entries that talked about the bad days, so you could. So it wasn't just um, Pollyanna, you know, you know, making up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everything's, you know, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Uh, <laughs> but but <laughs> even though they had posts like that, they also had uh, wonderful, beautiful posts of of you know how life went on and their families and and it was just very inspirational. And so I I became um, I enjoyed the blog so much. I reached out to both of them, became friends with both of them. Uh, through email, and when I decided to, uh, one of the reasons I started, decided to start my own blog was that I decided after having had the disease for a couple of years that um, I wanted to, you know, kind of pay back uh, the internet, I guess, for what I got out of it when I was first diagnosed. And I wanted to have a blog where if someone typed in colon cancer stage four hope or whatever general terms, that maybe I would pop up. And so when I named my um, my blog uh, Ventures of Living Terminally Optimistic. I actually combined words from uh, both of the titles of my of the two blogs that I followed, with their permission, and they were both uh, they both said they're honored, and so that's where it came from. Um, and so I, I personally uh, I love the, the the phrase "terminally optimistic" um, because I think it not only um, describes uh, uh, both the women's blogs that I followed and their personalities, but it describes mine. Is uh, I'm technically uh, terminal. Um, although I prefer using a different phrase, um, but I'm also filled with optimism. And so I, I don't think, um, they sound like they should be antonyms. Um, but I, I think, uh, if, if people try, you can be both. I love your philosophy. A question that I ask, uh, most of the people that I speak to during the podcast, Tom, and I'll, you may have partly answered it, but, um, uh, it's my hope that uh, with this podcast that it be, that it's a resource, uh, like you mentioned earlier, for people who've been diagnosed. And my question to you is: if, if somebody was listening and found this, found our conversation online, uh, and um, they themselves or someone they care deeply about was recently diagnosed, what would be your message to that person? Well, I think the very first thing I would, I would uh, say to them is take a deep breath and, and relax. Um, I certainly didn't make up this phrase, but I, I absolutely love it. Is um, Having cancer is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So um, the more you can just kind of, t- once again, take a deep breath and relax, the better, because you'll think clearer about the problem that you're facing. Um, it's better for you physically, um, and it's better to help make decisions with your medical team. Um, speaking of the medical team, uh, that's my next piece of advice is to really make sure that you find a, an oncologist, an entire medical team that you can really work well with and that you trust. Um, I'm a scientist. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, and so that was really one of my first priorities when I was first diagnosed was I found an absolutely wonderful oncologist that, that I just love. We work great together. And, um, and I've certainly, uh, you know, I've heard from people that they don't get along with the oncologist. Well, what I always recommend to them is that in most places, there's more than one oncologist. Don't hesitate to shop around um, if you need to, to find one that's the right fit for you. Um, one that's the right fit for you may not be the same as the right fit for someone else. It's really um, really uh, whatever works best for you, but it has to be someone that you trust because um, your care and your life is going to be in their hands. Um, the other uh, general piece of advice I love to give people is to join um, a, a patient online support forum. Um, there's a couple different options. They're all great in their own way. I belong to more than one of them. 
Um, and I can't imagine what it would have been like uh, having cancer before the internet, uh, because I think you can get so much out of um, online support forums. Um, you meet other people uh, from across the world that are living in kind of the same uh, thing that you're living, so they can relate to what you're talking about. They're usually private, so people can speak openly. Um, and they give each other emotional support, um, they're great sources of information uh, to pass back and forth, and they really help you to feel engaged in the community. Um, especially as a, as a young, uh, early onset uh, colorectal cancer uh, patient, I was only 40 when I was diagnosed, I uh, knew exactly one person in, in, in San Diego, and San Diego is a pretty big city. I personally knew one person um, who was uh, of similar age with, with colorectal cancer, um, but it was through um, the online support forums where all of a sudden the, 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 the world has opened up to me, and, and now I have you know, an incredible number of friends uh, that are uh, facing uh, similar circumstances as myself. And uh, finally, the thing that I really want to pound home, and something that I, that I, I say over and over and over in all my different uh, media outlets, um, is to have hope. Um, because you should have hope. Um, and I think it's so important for patients. Um, and that hope can come from a lot of different directions, and it really doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, some patients uh, uh, get hope through uh, spiritual means. Other uh, patients uh, find hope in that um, they, they meet, and, um, and I have met myself, Multiple patients that, you know, regardless of whatever statistics say, you know, throw statistics over your shoulder, aside from trying to choose between treatments. Uh, because they may say something, but there are always people out there that do much better than statistics. I personally know men, multiple people with stage 4 colon cancer um, that are, are still, you know, living and, and vibrantly living, you know, six, seven, eight, eight plus years out from the diagnosis. Um, and so have hope with that. Um, and as a scientist, I have a lot of hope um, in, in scientific progress. I know a lot of patients, whether scientists or not, have the same hope. Um, and so, you know, just have hope. And uh, personally, I have hope in all three avenues myself. But um, whatever you find hope in, just, just find hope from somewhere. Because it really, really helps. And, it, it, and I, I think it's an important thing to have. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Tom, where can people find you online? Um, so my, um, it's, a, it's a long title, so it's easiest to Google it, but it's adventures in um, livingterminallyoptimistic.com. Uh, but if you um, just Google my name plus blog, it'll pop up immediately. Um, and so uh, that's the easiest way to find me. I'm also on Twitter, but um, you'll find that on my website. Okay. I'll post the link to your blog uh, on the blog post that will accompany this podcast as well. So uh, make it easier for people to find, find you. Okay, well, Tom, I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share your story. I wish you first and foremost, uh, you know, good health, good outcomes, uh, you know, and thank you for the research that you're doing. Uh, I truly respect and admire you being terminally optimistic. And uh, I just wish you all the best and wish you and yours since we're recording this at the holidays, though this will not uh, come out probably till uh, after the new year, but I do want to wish you and yours uh, a very Merry Christmas and a great holiday. Yeah, thank you very much, Lee. Thanks for spending time with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Good night. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from this episode can be found on our website at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, on iTunes, 
or on the Stitcher app for listeners using an Android device. If you or a loved one has a question about colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at www.ccalliance.org. Again, that's www.ccalliance.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at the colon cancer podcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.